Lisa Doxed, the podcast. So I basically just wanted to have a conversation about belief and religious freedom and how it relates to online cults and even the spiritual TikTok space we were in. Um, Mm -hmm. I was pressured by a few people to not broach this subject of spirituality when addressing the cyberbullying stuff because they thought it would be like beside the point and turn people off to the important messages. But for me, I think the conversation is important to have or it groups well in my mind with the rest of what we're talking about because... I think it's related to what's going on in the world overall and how much we need hope. And I think it's related to the specific TikTok space we were all in and that kind of moment that we were having together. And I also think it was really relevant to my initial disagreement with Allie and Allie's back. (laughs) So uh, she Mm -hmm. was talking today about how I ruined her life over a small disagreement And that's not how I would characterize the initial thing, but I think that's difficult to explain without kind of digging a little bit into, you know, maybe even what we both believe versus kind of what was the the toxic whitewashed version of spirituality that she's even talking about. I think, you know, to me, like it's, it's also the First Amendment includes freedom of religion as a freedom. So it includes uh, speech, press, the right to peaceably assemble and the right to petition the government for redress of grievances and religion. And so the government can't make you follow a specific religion and it can't prevent you from believing what you want. And we're on TikTok. So, I mean, I think we all kind of learned that the legal sense of things and the the social sense of things can be very different when it comes to things like, is something wrong? (laughs) You know, but I think that the First Amendment deals with specifically what the government can do, but it still reflects a set of freedoms that society generally agrees are pretty essential um, because to take those freedoms away, even selectively, because you think you know best, it can be really dangerous. And even mm-hmm. though religion is maybe a less central institution in modern times, it's still listed up there with freedom of speech and assembly as a fundamental right. So I don't know. So I want to have a conversation about that. Yeah, I think it's an essential part of both of our stories when it comes to what we lived through with Allie and this whole cyberbullying saga that we're still we're still fucking living through right now. Uh, spirituality was a it was a major part of how we ended up in this space in the first place. It's definitely what Allie's platform is centered around in some kind of strange way today i still can't even tell you what her mission actually is (laughs) in terms of like how it relates to spirituality i think that's a little bit warped but for me the journey from religion to spirituality to autism to tiktok to all of this that's definitely a huge part of my story my story can't be told without it yeah I feel the same way about my story too you know yeah I think where we're both coming from has so much to do with belief and hope and also just this then it all has to do with this moment in time this kind of post-pandemic moment that we're all still feeling all the ripple effects of it put us all in this very specific kind of rhetorical space so um and with Ali I want to talk about where is the line between calling out the problems with something like a cult religion which I think is kind of purportedly what she was trying to do or for example some of one of the things that I was doing on my platform was calling out Christianity and I wasn't going and calling out specific Christian creators at all 
but I was talking about what I saw as problematic aspects of Christianity, which is heavily coming from my experience um, in my life. You know, I was somewhat using my platform to do that, to try to have a conversation about, you know, pointing out some real problems. And I think uh, you can do a similar thing with toxic spirituality. So where's the line between calling those things out versus leaving room for freedom of belief? And I think to me, the line is attacking ideas and not people mostly. But I wonder, where would you put that line? This might be an unpopular opinion, but I don't necessarily believe there needs to be a line. I think when it comes to belief and problem problematic beliefs and problematic practices around spirituality or even around Christianity itself, I think what you do is deconstruct. You deconstruct and you ask hard questions and you have conversations and you reconstruct your faith or move on from faith altogether and educate yourself and allow people to believe what they want to believe as long as they're not hurting anyone. And if they are hurting someone and you feel convicted to step in and intervene and interrupt, then I guess you can take up that space if you feel called to it. But if freedom of religion and freedom of speech is something that we all have, is it up to us to draw the line or do we just kind of stay in our own lane and deconstruct with others that are like-minded and and have the same questions and want to have that conversation? I mean, it's a good point. And I think it's a similar conversation to what is going on with cancel culture and kind of where that's justified and where it's not justified. But I do think that, you know, everybody's having their very unique personal experience. So there's kind of helpful and harmful people or ideas, no matter where you look or kind of what community you're part of, whether it's a religious community or otherwise. And you really can't know better than somebody else about their experience. And I think that is that kind of assumption that you can, that you can be objective and you can judge whether other people are right or wrong, whether that's like in their beliefs or just um, in their experiences and what they say is true for them. I think it's colonizing behavior and it's historically really dangerous. Like you can talk about the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or residential schools. These are all situations where, you know, a group of people thought that they knew best what to believe or how to, how to think basically. And mm -hmm. it causes a huge amount of harm, you know, over and over again in history. So I think to me, that's, it's tied to colonization um, because it's about control. I think that it's very important to let people have their own experiences and their own autonomy to say, you know, what is true. Um, and I guess that becomes an interesting conversation then when you dig into like what becomes delusion or what becomes unsafe and what even is mental illness. But I do think, you know, fu fundamentally people should have, should be allowed to decide what works for them and what is true for them in their experience. And I think experience highly does dictate what is true. I don't think there's an objective truth. And I think it's also, it's also colonizing to insist that your truth is objective. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that spirituality is such a deeply personal, deeply intimate experience that I have trouble with the idea of calling out someone for their spiritual beliefs or even for where they're at in their spiritual journey. Like that, it's never really sat well with me because it is such a journey, a lifelong one for many people, including myself. And I mean, it's not without its problems. Like, of course, there's going to be some definitely problematic things 
with certain belief systems, with certain spiritual practices, with the way people go about things. There's going to be some bad actors in there too. I think it's such an important part of the human experience to just allow people to exist and experience spirituality however they're meant to. It doesn't mean they're going to stay in one place forever. It doesn't mean that whatever they've stumbled upon that might be problematic is going to be where they stay. And even if that is the case, if it doesn't affect me or you or him or her, then why not just let it be? Maybe that's not the right answer, but I just don't really, I've never felt comfortable infringing upon someone else's spiritual journey. And as a young kid in a very high control Christian group. I grew up Seventh-day Adventist. I It didn't sit well with me there either. <laughs> Growing up in a really strict church, a really strict religious household, none of that seemed right to tell me that how I think and how I feel is wrong because it doesn't align with it doesn't align with a book that was written thousands of years ago. To tell someone, oh, your your spiritual belief or your practice or you know, your use of crystals or certain incense or whatever, that's problematic and wrong. Why? What does it have to do with you? I mean, I know there's the whole discord around, um, the discourse around like white sage and Palo Santo and like depleting indigenous people of their like sacred things that they've had forever and appropriating certain things like that's a different conversation that's completely different from what we're talking about I don't know it just it doesn't sit well with my spirit to infringe upon people's spiritual beliefs in any way well I do think that again it's it's proselytization which is trying to convert or control other people's beliefs I just see that as a fundamental problem I mean I see colonization as a fundamental problem mm-hmm. and I also think that there's a lot about there's a lot about hope that is really decolonizing and I think part of trying to control people's beliefs is trying to control their their freedom to hope and imagine things and imagine possible futures that are better um because that's part of just what keeps us locked in the way that things work and I think that I also grew up in a um and I'd love to hear like your kind of entire journey between that point in your life and where you're at now, you know, in terms of maybe how you identify spiritually or your practices or what led you to want to even speak to spiritual TikTok or write about spiritual topics. But I also grew up in a cult-like or it wasn't a super high control group, but it was a church that uh, was very corporatized the family that was in charge of it was kind of the top tier of authority there was no there was no one they reported to so it was very based around everything about that family including its flaws because they were just in charge of the entire thing and it all trickled down into the character of the community and it was not the healthiest thing (laughs) i think that a lot of what we were taught when we were younger was to proselytize And I think that it's just an anxiety about controlling other people's thoughts. Controlling people's thoughts is how the powers that be maintain the status quo. Yeah. I think one thing that is really important to me in the framing of a lot of the spiritual rhetoric too, because I can see how it can be really dangerous because there's a way to take it all of that language and turn it into a very solipsistic outlook 
where everything is a conspiracy and the powers that be are maybe like certain individuals who may be Jewish <laughs> or whatever, you know, like global world order, conspiracy, reptilian stuff. That's mm -hmm. all just, but I think that that kind of anti-Semitism, for example, exists whether or not you're using the language of reptilians and stuff. And again, there's going to be good and bad actors in every space. But I think it's important to understand that at least when I'm talking about the system, and I think when people who are who are dealing in intersectionality are talking about the system, I think that it's important to understand that it's more like the system is a machine rather than some shadowy cabal of individual people. And the machine just kind of chugs along and does what it's going to do. And it causes, I mean, it can feel like a conspiracy sometimes, but I don't even think that there are are necessarily just some shadowy individuals right at the top who are consciously aware of how to control everything. I think it's more like it's all been set in motion a certain way. And so then it takes some active motion in the opposite direction or basically like throwing a stick in the cogs if you're really going to change anything. But I think that difference is important because you can use all that same language, whether you're talking spirituality or whether you're talking, I don't know, more broadly, you can use all that same language and be talking about two basically oppositional things. And I think that's where the the harm can come in. But to me, the harm is not stemming from spirituality or, you know, anything that that's playing out in. That's stemming from the way that society is just set up in the first place. So no matter what mm -hmm. language you're using, you're still in a society that's setting you up to not be able to break out of it unless you do something really radical and just really kind of break the machine. I agree with that. The amount of courage it takes to be radical and the backlash that you receive for being radical. I don't think a lot of people wrap their brains around that. I think it's a scary thing to imagine throwing a stick in the cog and stopping the machine, interrupting that forward motion to affect actual significant change. Yeah. And I don't even, how do you even go about doing that? Is it worth it? to do that? Or is it more about individual small changes over time? Because the machine will try to grind you into dust anyway, whether or not we speak. <laughs> that's from Sister mm. Outsider. But that's kind of my outlook at this point is just that it's all about the whole thing is consuming us all all the time. And I think consumption is also part of the big, the big problem. And um, I think that it is, it's not comfortable to go against the grain it's not comfortable um because everything in the entire system and again it's not like some individual people it's the whole machine that you're inside of that you're some cog in you know doesn't want you to do anything but what it was it was trying to program you to do the whole time so there's going to be even individual people that will come at you and in various ways try to you know put the shame on you put the social pressure on you and people get very defensive. I think those defense mechanisms that kick in, the kind of, you know, there's trolls in this situation who are just in this, involving themselves and really out to punish us in really just hateful ways for, for really no reason. Really, they don't know what's going on even. They aren't, they're just, you know, like in a way, they're kind of just programmed by the machine to have this very defensive trigger reaction to something that goes that against the grain, I think. And, um, you know, that can be wild to see a level of spite in an individual who has just, I don't know, not done the deconstruction to not do that at something radical. But that's, you know, so that's an, that's one example, but, it, but it's everywhere, it's all the time. 
kind of wanting to push you into a box. Like I think about this with my queerness, it's much harder to have a non-nuclear, non-hetero cis relationship, not a straight relationship, because everything in society just makes it easier to do that. It's easier to get married. It's easier to combine your finances. You're more financially secure. You're more able to have, you know, just like your taxes are going to be easier. Like every, all the boxes you have to check will be there and make sense. You're allowed to visit people in the hospital. Like there's just all kinds of, and then there's just daily fear. There's all kinds of levels on every level, macro and micro, that the whole machine is working against you at all at all moments. So it's this very, very conscious act to not kind of fall in line. And it's a struggle, but I think the struggle is for survival. I think it's about, I think that's how you survive as, mm -hmm. especially as anybody that's not centered. And really none of us are, are, fully, are fully centered the way that some of us would like to imagine we are enough to be anxious about protecting that centered status, you know? Mm -hmm. But anyway, the, those of us who are not at the center, um, who are not lifted up by society and promoted and helped at every turn. That's very important for us to still be alive anyway. And part of what the machine tries to do is use us, weaponize us, work us to death, steal our energy and kill us. That's, you know, the more, I think the more out of the center you are, the more of a marginalized you are, the more you, you directly experience that throughout your life, that you're in a machine that's trying to use you and then kill you. You, you know, I would rather speak. I feel like having grown up Seventh-day Adventist, the whole thing about being ground up in the machine, having to move with the flow of the machine or getting ran over, it's very much baked into the cake of Christianity. The Seventh-day Adventist church that I grew up in was a Black church. It was the only Black Seventh-day Adventist church I think I've ever seen in my entire life. And there's such a small percentage of Caribbean people that are Seventh-day Adventists. And I think an even smaller, a small percentage of people that are Seventh-day Adventists and Black. So the one church we went to, it did feel pretty culty because there was just such a small number of us. But one thing that's true, whether you're Seventh-day Adventist whether you're Mormon, whether you're Baptist, Pentecostal, whatever denomination you are of the Christian church one thing's going to be true and it's going to be toxic purity culture that's the thing that's true across all denominations of christianity yeah. so growing up i was told as a kid and shown as a kid you're supposed to be seen and not heard but then as you mature into your femininity you mature into your womanhood you're supposed to understand you are to not be heard and not be seen. You're taught that your your growing body, your developing body is a, a stumbling block for your brothers in Christ. You are, you shoulder the burden of having to manage the impure thoughts of every man and every boy that lays eyes on you. You have to prevent men from looking at you because just a look is a sin and that sin is your fault as the girl. And that's a, that's a heavy cross to bear. Even leaving Seventh-day Adventism and thinking, you know, I'm going to leave the church, but the guilt of walking away from Seventh-day Adventism was so intense that I ended up going to evangelical Christianity, the non-denominational church where there's a rock band and the pastor wears jeans and there's guitars and drums and the worship band. That was my church. And it was... <laughs> It was just the same 
thing, but except for it was all white people. And as a black woman in that church, there is no blending in. You always stand out. You stick out like a sore thumb at me being as curvy as I've always been. It's, it was, I was just like a walking stumbling block, a walking sin. And the, the picture of purity in that church, which I think a lot of people can agree with is petite, white, blonde, blue eyed, no curves, <laughs> no sense of sensuality, no, just being able to suppress every urge, every desire and just kind of blending into the wallpaper until you get chosen. And it's all about being chosen, all about being picked. In the church that I was in, there was no, there it was never going to be picked. I was never going to be anyone's wife. I was never going to be a pastor's wife. I was always going to be too dark skinned, too black, too curvy, too much cleavage, lips too big, too much lip gloss, lashes too long, hair is too distracting, my hair is too big. Like it's, it's all, it was always going to be something. Yeah. And on top of being autistic and not knowing that at the time, having ADHD and not knowing that at the time and really struggling with that, struggling socially in the church, it was never going to, it was never going to happen for me. So my entire life, my entire life, I was spent feeling wrong and out of place and just knowing I'm always going to be sinful. I'm always going to be seen as sinful. I'm never going to be chosen. I'm never going to be a wife, never going to be a mother never going to be a good enough Christian woman. So to stumble upon new age spirituality that tells us you are a little piece of source energy. Every You are made up of the same thing that the universe is made up of. And all you have to do is just, you know, think this way and you can have all the desires of your heart and your, your sensuality is magic. And to be told all of that, it's like, oh my God, that's all I ever wanted. I just, I've always wanted to feel connected to source, to feel connected to a higher power that doesn't want to punish me for existing, for existing differently than the the picture of purity. And I think that's the draw for a lot of people that leave Christianity and find spiritualism or find new age new age spirituality and manifestation and all of that but to jump from one to the other without deconstructing and decolonizing is it's just another trap that you can fall into and that's a that's a lifelong journey of deconstructing that and asking deeper questions and really checking in with yourself and looking at your trauma and healing deep healing is so needed when you jump from one belief system to another. So it's really hard for me to to ever think of jumping on the bandwagon of calling out people instead of problematic concepts because everyone's journey through that is different. The call to different types of spiritual practices, I feel like that call comes from a place of trauma for a lot of people. Your subconscious, your body, your mind, your spirit is looking for different ways to heal different wounds. And that's going to look different for everyone. And yeah, it's going to look problematic for some and not for others. But I think it's important to just let people live and learn their lessons, how they're supposed to learn them. Absolutely. And I think uh, that concept of purity is also to me very wrapped into um, colonization and proselytization. I think that 
I mean, first of all, that's exactly how the machine works to just kind of make you feel like you're constantly out of place. So you're so busy trying to fit into the box that, you know, you can't really fully embody yourself and take up the space that you deserve to take up, which is a tragedy. But I, th I do think purity, which also goes into like whiteness, even like whiteness of skin or whatever, purity is, is a lie. It's a lie. It's a, it's a fake idea that there's some sort of perfect pre-societal state that we can ever kind of go backward and get back to and that we need to be constantly striving for that and that we're falling short of it uh like to be sinless or something constantly for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god you know that sort of anxiety that that produces of like you will never be good enough is totally by design and it's part of controlling you know and it, and it has to do with sexual purity too and i do think that um you know sensuality is such an interesting Part of it to bring up too because it, it does have so much to do with spirituality i think especially for you know women and people who are trying to get in touch with their femininity in any way <laughs> i i think of it like eroticism i guess too and oh i wish that i could remember let me see if i can quickly find my source again here i think it's audra lord talks about eroticism yeah it is audra lord she talks about how you can access really deep levels of feeling through the erotic and that the masculine world uh, values this depth enough to, and this is a quote from her, keep women around in order to exercise it in the service of men. But at the same time, it fears this same depth too much to examine the possibilities of it within themselves. So women are maintained at a distant or inferior position to be psychically milked, much the same way ants maintain colonies of aphids to provide a life-giving substance to their masters. And that quote always really struck me because it's like uh, we get our eroticism is something that's really powerful. I think it's very closely connected to what people describe as source energy, what they describe as magic, even energy in general. I would also connect music to that. But eroticism is suppressed by systems that prioritize profit and corporatization, and they ignore the psychic and emotional levels of need. And so Lord is pointing to this connection as a reason why the erotic is so feared in when it's in, even recognized, because sometimes we don't even understand what that is and mistake it. And so she says that when we fail to recognize the erotic, we are abusing the feelings of other people participating in an experience with us rather than sharing in the power of each other's feelings. And I think that's really interesting, too. Like when we misunderstand the erotic or when we don't, when we don't value it, we turn it, we fetishize it, we pervert it and it becomes a way to abuse sexuality and sex becomes about a power struggle and about using another person rather than sharing in an experience with another person. And so I think that, um, you know, part of re-empowerment for, for all of us, really, because all of us have, you know, masculine and feminine aspects and elements to try to balance. But I think, you know, there's a lot of a problem of suppressing the erotic precisely because it is such a powerful thing. And I think that happens a lot with this system, this machine, that precisely the things that are the most powerful are laughed at or minimized or, you know, uh, looked down at. Even, you know, when it comes to spirituality, and people, you know, correctly comment and note that a lot of the stuff that that has come up around manifestation, around um, twin flames, you know, around um, clear sensitivity, psychic practices, um, a lot of that started with uh, white women 
and a lot of it was not was discounting a lot of things you know basically just not basically the the early history of it was very whitewashed but it was also very led by women and i think that can be a reason why spirituality um or i guess new what you would call new age spirituality but that's not like it's not a religion that's just a loose term to describe a wide variety of belief systems that people kind of personally adopt or amalgamate but it's very women led i think it always has been and so I think there's, it's important to notice that there are racist elements to a lot of those early writings and um, where that's coming from through the context of the history. But it's also important to recognize that it's a, it's a woman-led thing. And I think that's a big reason why it gets discounted because it's precisely because it's so powerful, actually. So I agree that it's a, it's a woman-led thing. And I think that's true across all cultures across all time periods since the beginning of time. I think that's always been true. That spirituality has always been led by women? Yeah, I believe that. I think spirituality in its truest form and its most raw form is something that's been led by the feminine, for sure. Well, I do think that there's, um, if you're talking about a dual feminine-masculine opposition, part of that is internal versus external. So I think the external trappings of religion and religion is a public kind of institution. That's actually part of why it's included in the constitution because men wrote that and thought that those things were important because men are all about these public institutions. So university systems, um, politics, law, and um, these are very external things. These have to do with going out into the world, you know, journeying forth and and trying to make your way. And then there's the internal, which are things that happen in the home, things that happen in the heart, things that happen in the family, things that happen, you know, personally. So I think those internal things have, have been women-led for a long time. And then I think that they become institutionalized. And it's almost like a way of fossilizing or like, Maybe that's not quite the right word because it's not like they're dead once they become external, but they they sort of become deep depersonalized or like dissociate. No, depersonalized, I think is the word. So I think things like, you know, faith and hope are things that happen. Are you tired of feeling unsafe online? Do you want to learn how to protect yourself from cyberbullying, doxing, and other forms of online harassment? Then look no further than Doxed the Podcast. Visit the website doxthepodcast.com to sign up for the Doxed free ebook full of helpful tips and resources for online safety. Plus, when you sign up, you'll receive the weekly newsletter with the latest updates on upcoming content. There are many ways to connect with Doxed, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Discord. Have a story to share or feedback to give? Use the contact form on the site to reach out or leave a voice message to be featured on the show. And for exclusive content, subscribe to the Doxed Supercast to gain access to the private podcast feed with member-only exclusives. Take control of your online safety and join the Doxed community today. In an internal way and things even like life force and energy and... Yeah, I feel like the internal versus external is a really, it's a really interesting way to put it. I never really thought about it that way. And the, the structure around spirituality and religion, the institutionalized 
The institutionalizing of it does feel very masculine. The need to contain it and give it some kind of order and structure, the need to organize it, the need to make it predictable and contained does feel very masculine. The inner world of it all, the inner healing of it all feels very fluid and I almost want to say wild. It's like wildly feminine to lean into your spirituality and in kind of an unbridled way. I feel like that's how spirituality should be. It shouldn't be order and rules and and structure and do this, don't do that. It, it should be led by your gut. It should be led by your nervous system. It should be led by your your inner world, your inner spirit, because that's where it makes the most sense. When other people try to control your spiritual journey, that's where it starts to hurt. That's where it starts to cause harm. That's where it doesn't make sense anymore. And then the magic of connecting to source in your own way just kind of gets lost. Absolutely. And I love that you bring up the body. I think that's another another aspect uh, that is that gets ignored because it is the marked thing, the feminine thing. There's a lot of scholarship that does recognize, like Spinoza talks about the body as a source of knowledge different from your mind, you know? And so there's an entire kind of scholarship that is called affect theory that's about, about the reality that we can know true things in our bodies that we don't necessarily know in our minds or that we don't merely know in our minds again i think that gets so discounted and also because it 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 doesn't enter into the realm of language or doesn't necessarily have to and so we can't really categorize it and so part of our public system part of the external world is language and i think language in part dictates what we understand to be real or to count as something we can even think about so i think it becomes almost like a hidden kind of knowledge because you can't really learn to trust your body just you know you i guess you can lead people close but you know language isn't really the the avenue to learn that and that's what we're indoctrinated into as we enter into society you know go to school become a functioning adult in society you kind of learn through the system not to trust your body but that's again incredibly powerful if you can learn to trust it because there is real knowledge that is stored in your body. I 100% agree with that. And I would even go so far as to say that language takes us maybe a little further away from spirituality. Because if you think about it, the, the awareness that lies behind your thoughts, there is no language there. The awareness that recognizes your inner dialogue, that, that awareness doesn't speak. That awareness just moves you one direction or another. I, I don't think language helps or hurts that in any way. I think it just kind of moves us further away from that because the ego, the, the thought loop that runs in all of our heads all the time, that's, that tends to be what pulls us away from things and causes division and divisiveness and conflict and judges ourselves and judges other but the awareness behind those inner thoughts it doesn't do that and I feel like that awareness that central nervous system that gut feeling the 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 thought behind the thought that doesn't speak that is your spirit that is spirituality that's something that can't be judged or pushed or shoved one way or another it's just your it's your internal 
guidance system. It's your connection to source. Mm -hmm. I think people get a little too wrapped up in the language of it all. And I feel like the language of it all is the ego of it all. Absolutely. I think language is so connected to ego. And it's also connected to division because it's all about categorization. By putting a word on something, you're categorizing it. And I think language is always already a filter over top of real experiences. And that doesn't make it a lie, but it makes it so that it can never be final. You can never say a sentence that is just the truth. And that's what I mean when I mean when I say there's nothing really objective that you can say that's the truth. There's I, I believe in kind of a middle path between radical subjectivity and objectivity. So I don't so what I mean by that is I don't think that everything is just totally random and meaningless. And I think a lot of times when you deny objectivity, when you say, I don't think there is objective truth, people are like, oh, well, what do you think? Everything's meaningless? No. I think there's a third way in the middle, which has to do with experiential knowledge, which has to do with you experienced it in your physical body. And we would think about things very differently if we did not have those thoughts coming from physical bodies. Like, for example, you have a barrier of your skin between your internal self and your external world that kind of defines, categorizes the difference between those two things is your skin. And so we end up, and it's a container for you. And so we end up thinking about a lot of things in our, in our world in terms of container metaphors, because we are humans in human bodies. So all of kind of what we understand to be true is very much dictated by our human experiences. It would be so, so different, unimaginably different if we had completely different experiences. Um, so it's always some kind of a subjective filter, which can still be grounded in your actual bodily experience. And so I think, you again, you can kind of use language and you have to, you have to, to, I think really that, you know, this digs into my personal beliefs and I don't think everyone should have to believe the same thing I do at all. I think that we are all connected as one, one kind of thing. And I think that all of this business about identity and about even, you know, politics, language, all of it is one giant organism called humanity that is all processing and dealing with itself, you know, whatever. Like, why are you, why are you calling yourself the suppressed identity? Why don't you just move past it? Well, no, that's called spiritual bypassing because you're basically just ignoring something that you actually have to sit there and process. It's all about sitting there and doing the work to process it. And then once you get past that point, then you no longer need language. Then you no longer need society. Then you no longer need individual identities. Then we really can be just one big thing. But first you have to do that kind of processing integration part. And I think that's what all of language really is. It's us all kind of processing our experiences and trying to reintegrate them. And the ego is also us all trying to process our experiences. Yeah. Yeah. The ego is, it is a mechanism for processing our experiences. And that is sort of what develops our personality and our personality is what we move through the world with. That's how we uh, interact with other people. It's how we perceive others and how they perceive us and gets us in a lot of trouble. <laughs> it creates a lot of beautiful experiences and a lot of really painful ones. I don't know if I believe in the theory that before we are conscious on this earth, before we take our human form, we choose our life path, we choose 
the container we arrive in, we choose our, our bodies, our skin colors, our family. I don't know if I believe in all of that. I don't know if I believe that I chose every trauma, traumatic experience I lived through, but I think there is some purpose in the human form that we take. There's something to it, not to say that our individual traumas were destined or deserved or self-inflicted in any way, but I think there is some kind of purpose. There's some kind of meaning for it all, but I think we get hung up on our identities much more than necessary. I hope I'm not saying that wrong. For instance, I I sit at a lot of different intersections that make my life experience not the easiest, not the smoothest. I'm a woman. I'm Black. Identify, I identify as pansexual. I'm autistic. I have ADHD. I have CPTSD. I had a really rough childhood, a lot of childhood trauma, a lot of relational traumas a lot of issues with past relationships with men if you name it i've i've been through some of it <laughs> and but there there's more to me than that there's more to me than my skin color there's more to me than my my womanhood or my childhood trauma or my family dynamics there's this inner being in me that feels so deeply connected to source and it feels so joyful to wake up and take a breath in the morning and to see sunlight and to hug my mom and feel the love of my my mom and my friends and to be able to create art and to write or to play my favorite song and to dance there's a deep inner joy that means so much more than any identity that I that I claim does that does that make any sense it absolutely like there's so much sense. more absolutely I think you're completely right and I think that's kind of what I'm again with different language you know which works differently because of different experiences but I think that's what I'm trying to get at with this idea that we're all kind of one thing and there's something there is something underneath the surface I also believe I think that identity is really about navigating again that external world of society I guess articulating your place in it can be important in order, again, to survive or in order to claim power, in order to re-empower yourself when people have taken your power. But there's also an internal sense in which I don't think it is. Yeah, I think that we're, there's so much underneath that. I think that that, for me, that reflects in my queer communities that I've been in, where it's kind of well known when you're in diverse queer communities that when you're when you're kind of going outside of those communities into broader society the specific label is something people care about you know you might say something like i'm specifically i'm bisexual and i'm i identify as non-binary and part of the trans community and 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 when you're with within your group of friends that you trust and you're just a bunch of, you know, bays and gays, then like, who cares? Like it, nobody's trying to sit there unless it's like a matter of like, are we attracted to, to each other to try to date or something, have one of those conversations. Mm -hmm. But like, if you're just some friends, like you're not sitting there being like, oh yes, like I'm a they, them lesbian. And I'm, you know, you're sitting there just friends having experiences and having a lot of overlap in those experiences and some not. And then sometimes it, you know, can be interesting enough to have those terms to kind of, um, again, just articulate experiences and some of the differences in them. But 
it's not like you need to survive in that group of friends. And I think, again, that's that internal external dichotomy. And there really, I do believe there is something underneath. That something underneath is it's everything. The most important thing, I think. And in terms of like, should anyone be the one to judge anyone else's spiritual journey or judge anyone else's spiritual beliefs? I Should anyone be the one to exact anyone else's karma? I don't necessarily think that's anyone's choice because if karma is a thing, if that's if that's a real thing, I mean, life lessons are a thing, karma or not. Like If that's your belief system, I don't even think that really matters because life lessons are going to happen no matter what. But if I'm a part of your life lesson, that's just going to play out how it's going to play out, right? Like if there's something that you need to learn, if you fucked up in some way and there's a, a deeper lesson that you need to learn in this lifetime, people are going to be a part of that, whether they choose to be or not, whether it's them simply walking out of your life and not wanting to be around you anymore, or whether it's their, them being there supporting you through that, or, you know, like different choices, different things are going to be catalysts for other things to t- kind of pop off. I don't think we necessarily have to choose that or be the ones to say, I'm going to teach you this lesson because you did something that I don't believe in. And so I have to call you out on it. I don't even think that's necessary. Well, I would play devil's advocate and just say, first of all, I think, I think you're right. Things are going to play out how they're going to play out. Also, I think karma and I'm not an expert, but I think it's commonly kind of misunderstood. And it's much more about, it's like an inter-lifetime thing rather than a, that's happening to you mm-hmm. next week, kind of a punishment. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. but I think that there's a difference between two, between personal beliefs and when you're somebody like either a call-out creator or somebody who has just the kind of sway over a large group of people and is able to form a cult around you or some other kind of situation where you have an undue inordinate amount of power and you are again swaying people either proselytizing to people or perhaps tricking them swindling them or perhaps just weaponizing them i think that's a different question entirely in terms of do you address that do you try to do you try to do something about that Mm-hmm. And at that point, I do think it's kind of a direct action thing. Like at that point, that's a question of power imbalances in the world. And I think, again, you have to take action to correct those things because they're just automatically going to happen in a system that is a machine that just chugs along. And it, in some cases, you are totally called to do things like break the machine, re- correct that power imbalance that you see there, correct that injustice. I think it's highly contextual. It's highly up to what you are called to do and what your life path is, you know, what, you, mm-hmm. what you're supposed to be doing in this world and what you feel called to do. Um, I love Jubilee's Venn diagram where you kind of, I'm not going to get it right, but where you, you have to be able to want it. You have to be able to, I forget what they are. You're called to do it. You want it. And you are like happy doing, it. I think that's right. Um, you want to do it. You can do it and you understand it. Okay. I do think there's a difference between trying to correct a power imbalance that you see and that you see harming people in a systemic way versus trying to correct someone's personal beliefs. Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with that. I think personal belief systems, I'm not sure that's something that can be really 
deeply impacted by outside sources. I think your ego can be swayed one way or another, but someone's like spirit, someone's inner world, that's between them and source. I think you can influence people's ego. But as a person outside of myself, there's only so much that you can do to hurt me. There's only so much you can do to change my mind, to convince me, to seduce me. But I think the most steadfast thing about all of us is our spirit. Yeah. And I think it's easy to misunderstand and think that people do have a lot more control over you than they do. And sometimes people do even have control over things like your, you know, your physical presence or something. But I think, you know, you can control how you react. And that's something that's incredibly powerful too. And you can control Mm -hmm. who you are by telling your own story. I think storytelling is such an important part of, you know, how people define themselves and how they process their experiences, coming up with narratives um, that fit their lives, that make the most sense for what their experiences were, that help to explain them. That helps give people closure and it helps people to process what has happened to them, kind of reintegrate it into who they are and move past it and become stronger for it. So I think being able to tell ourselves stories and tell each other stories of who we are, of what our experiences are, that's very, very healing. Mm -hmm. And it's an important part of, I think what- I think storytelling is such an essential part of not just spiritual journeys, but just culture. Storytelling is what keeps culture alive. And it's not just the language of storytelling, but it's the energy behind the story. It's the energy of the person telling the story. And that nonverbal information that's exchanged that speaks directly to spirit. I think that's that's so important. That's why silencing people is so devastating. I don't think anything feels much worse to me than being silenced and not being able to tell my story, not being able to hear someone's story. And people really, really get hell bent around like making sure they're able to control a story, making Uh, sure their side of a story is told and the other isn't told. And if they do tell it, it needs to be spun this way or another. I think everyone pretty deeply understands the importance of storytelling. But above that, even more important than that, is being able to read the energy behind a story. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's also a big difference between, you know, we used to pass down stories and songs orally through telling each other them. Um, and then that switched to writing, you know, and then we had the, the whole enlightenment kind of happened because of this big switch of how we got our knowledge from passing it down and that including the body language and the tone and the energy of it and almost kind of truncating it in a way with the advent of writing. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there is a lot of like, what's the word I use before? Dissociation? No. Depersonalization. Depersonalization that comes with that. And even, you know, that comes into like asynchronicity as well and anonymity, which trickles into our conversations today about isolation from this mass movement online to all of our communities and interactions being parasocial online, you know, and our just our conversation the other day about how trolling increases when people tend to when people are more isolated and are able to be anonymized. I think that's interesting too. With the the advent of this whole influencer era that we're in, 
and the uptick in personal in parasocial relationships like specifically talking about tiktok because i think mm -hmm. parasocial relationships have taken a turn <laughs> i don't know if it's been a it's a dark turn with tiktok to go back to the whole storytelling thing i think there's it's not great that there are influencers that can tell a story and draw a crowd and there's this parasocial dynamic where there's all these other people having this experience with this influencer and it's one-sided mm. but the grip that they have on these people on these followers depending on the niche that you're in I mean I feel like I'm always just talking about autistic people and spirituality on that one little weird corner of TikTok because it's it's such an interesting little space but the the hold the chokehold that they have on these people in these really intense parasocial relationships i think uh it's just so important to read the energy behind the stories you're being told from these influencers because it's it's one thing to build a community and community is a two-way multi-way street there's an energy exchange in building community it's another thing to stand on a platform and shout to the masses and not be connected to anyone but the mass of people they're all connected to you in some way and think that they know you and think that they love you and think that you love them and think that there's a mission and they have this purpose on this mission but there's no real community there's no real connection there's no accountability there's no checks and balances and a broken record but it's just so important to lean into your inner world to be aware the awareness behind your thoughts it's so important to tap into that I don't know what we call that I don't know what the word is to call that thing and maybe it's best that I don't know the what the word is maybe there is no word for that but to awesome. tap into that awareness that listens to your ego it's like it's a stillness it's a silence and when you click into it when you're aware of your inner thoughts, God, it changes everything. It's like the lights turn on when you listen to your inner thoughts. And the thing that's listening, that should be your guidance system, not the thoughts themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the thoughts are kind of the ego. And then the thing beneath the thoughts is the is the sense or the, I guess, intuition or, yeah, you, you may be. I also don't know what exact language to pin it down with, but source, spirit, energy. I think about things in terms of energy a lot. I like that language. It works well for me, you know, mm -hmm. but it also reminds me of circling back to my upbringing in a church and you were, you know, hilariously describing exactly my church. I was the keyboard player in my church growing up and <laughs> we were the rock band church. So we had like Friday night youth services with the lights, strobe lights and the like very specific pattern of emotional manipulation. I came to realize it was because mm -hmm. I at first autistically bought into it, took it very literally, was a, was a very good Christian, you know, except you can never be really good enough, even as a naive autistic child, like <laughs> mm -hmm. you can never be sinless. Right. But, um, took it very seriously and literally, and was very involved in my church as a kid and did music. And the kind of music was totally to pull at people's heartstrings and you get people pumped up with these like rock songs and anthems. And then you would 
cool it down. And then the, the pastor will come up and he'll give his, you know, and it's all leading you energetically, emotionally into quote unquote, getting saved. And I mean, it's so interesting that that terminology is even used because it ties back into, I think like white saviorism and like um, this need to the idea that you're saving everybody when really what you're trying to do is control them into thinking like you. That's kind of colonization again. You know, that's what we were doing. We were we were emotionally get, taking people on this journey and leading them right to the water where the water was become part of our church system and give us money ultimately. And um, the lack of accountability too, you know, it's very similar with, it's not quite a parasocial relationship because you do kind of one-to-one -one know these like, pastors in this family that was in charge of the church but they're also very iconic in a way they had kind of their weird inner circle and then they had a broader you know it was it was structured somewhat like a cult i don't think it was it was i don't think it was a super extreme you know clearly a cult that i was in in super danger of but there were a lot of really problematic teachings that ultimately just served a particular family with no accountability so i think that structure reminds me a lot of you know, the way these call out creators work. And I fell away from that, realizing that it was really toxic for me because it was patriarchal and it was keeping me really out of touch with myself. It was taking up my energy and it was controlling me. And I broke away from that and I became, uh, I identified as like a nihilist atheist for a really long time and kind of, you know, in my early twenties, I guess. And I was just very much whatever you would imagine a typical kind of atheist bro to, to, to try to argue. Like I thought I really had it figured out. I, I really, I dug into philosophy. I have a minor in philosophy from my undergrad degree. And I was really interested in figuring out the question of, you know, is God real? And I read so much scholarship and thought around that question. And I came, I really liked Nietzsche and I came to a kind of conclusion for a while that like, okay, we're in postmodernism and nothing really matters. And we're all tumbling through an endless void that doesn't matter at all. There is no God, but I can just kind of be creative with my life and like invent something and whatever. Like I can at least, I can at least kind of just act as if there's meaning. And then that basically makes my life a work of art. And then there's some meaning. Okay. So that's a reason to like not die, but continue on. And then I eventually kind of started to convince myself because I was like, well, wait, like things do, do feel really meaningful. And then all at once I had this moment, uh, it was after the pandemic. And I think, um, that was a catalyst for a lot of people. There was a huge moment. And part of what we were doing on TikTok, I think was being a part of this moment where a lot of people had gone into their internal worlds because they were forced out of their external worlds by COVID. And then people did a lot of soul searching and that manifested in a lot of ways. But one of the ways that it manifested was, a lot of people had what they would describe what they would describe as spiritual awakenings. Then a lot of people found themselves on our little corner of TikTok because they were, and again, I think for you and I in particular, some of the same people had also kind of gone through that moment on TikTok in like 2020 through 2022 or whatever, where everyone was discovering they were autistic because we were all getting fed, like the algorithm was just pushing us content that was like, you know, put a finger down if you identify with all these characteristics and oh if you do you're probably autistic and then it's like oh no um <laughs> I think a lot of us kind of all in one swoop started to 
learn some new language for, for that stuff. And then also experience these massive shifts in our understandings about energy, understandings about meaning and why we're here. And that certainly happened to me. I went through um, a very intense experience where a lot of friends, a lot of people that I thought I could trust and was safe with um, were not as close to me as I thought and did not care about me as much as I thought. And they fell away. And I think that's a really common experience for people as they grow really radically is the people that you sort of were comfortable living your life with fall away. And it can be a really scary, really destabilizing experience. And I think a lot of us had that as well. And then as things start to reform, you know, the hope and what I really believe is that is that the people that end up around you are the people that are much more suited to what you need to be doing or who you need to be. And I think, you know, we were all in that space kind of just trying to figure it out and trying to find like-minded people, which I think you and I did. And I think I did with a few other people and I hope you did too in that space. And then of course, among us are, are wolves and grifters and, you know, people trying to build their brand to whatever degree or, or, you know, just make a quick buck. And then there's people that are trying to straddle that where they're like, well, I want to make this a career because I really do feel called to it. And then there's people that are genuinely just trying to figure this stuff out because I think it was a very interesting moment right after COVID where people were just, yeah, for the first time going into their inter internal worlds, really digging in. And a lot of us found hope and a surprising amount of connection to life and faith. And, you know, it, it's pretty, it's pretty wild for me to have gone from staunch atheism, convinced that nothing mattered, convinced we were tumbling through an endless void to actually, no, like there is real meaning. I think it really actually matters in a big, big way. And we're all connected. And there's so much more hope in my life after that moment. And I do think that with the Ali situation, one of the most, one of the reasons that it wasn't just a disagreement for me, it wasn't just a small thing. It was something that I didn't let go. And I didn't just lie down about was because that was so, so empowering to me. And so much of what I exactly needed to come to in my journey was that space and that way of thinking to where I'm talking in terms of energy manifestation, whatever it is. And like, I was always trying to bring scholarship to the table, bring resources to the table, talk about this in nuanced, you know, informed by critical theory ways on my account in that space. But I think I couldn't let it go because at its core, it was so, it was so a, such a big part of my power and my calling and what I I know is true for me. And um, it just wasn't, it was really not okay for someone to come in and to say, you know, let me dismiss you as delusional. Let me go even further and connect you to someone's death and say that you were so harmful, you caused someone's death. Um, and then even further than that, as <laughs> things have progressed, but even just at the beginning, you know, to call someone delusional for something that they went through that was so empowering and so beautiful and something that they feel called to share with the world in a way that they think will help other people. I think that was really cruel. And it was just a fundamental, you know, disrespect of my, of my freedoms that are like enshrined in our constitution is how important they are, is how fundamental they are to humanity, to being able to live our lives as full, empowered humans.
So it meant that much to me. And I don't think it really, I don't think the rhetoric around the whole thing ever allowed that to take center stage because I think that it's so easy for people to minimize and diminish a belief system, especially when it's feminized, especially when it's, when it's a woman speaking or when it's not a man, you know, and especially when it's, when it, when it also just seems like it does, it seems like it has to do with identity politics or something, but I just can't, I just, to me, it really was that important, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And I think it's because I understand these big sweeping things that have happened throughout history and how incredibly dangerous it is to try and think that you're going to save everybody and think that you're going to do that by controlling what everybody else thinks. That's a huge red flag. Yeah, I think there's a couple different things I want to comment on because you said some really <laughs> important things. <laughs> um, one is the collective yet individual spiritual awakening that so many people experienced during lockdown. Um, and even if people don't identify as spiritual, even if they don't want to call what they experienced a spiritual awakening, there was a major shift that happened when people were sort of forced to sit with themselves. And in that stillness, in that huge falling away of distraction, in that having to maybe be unemployed, maybe stay home with kids for longer than they ever have, or to sit with their husbands or their wives for longer than they ever have alone, having to face relationship issues, having to face, maybe I don't love being a mom. Maybe I don't love being a dad. Maybe I don't love my partner as much as I thought I did. Uh, and those are really awful things to to say out loud. But I think a lot of people were forced to sit with their inner truths. And I experienced a huge falling away of people that I loved during that time, <laughs> having to sit with my boyfriend at the time and really face our relationship issues and acknowledge abuse that was happening to me that I didn't even realize was abuse at the time for childhood friends to fall away in one of my darkest hours, which is still painful to think about today, all the things that felt like they were just ripped away from me all at once. But there was a shift happening within me too. And it was important. And at the end of the day, it was good. And one thing that I learned through that really painful process is that as I grow and evolve and change and turn into the being that I'm supposed to be, not everyone is going to be a fit for me through each stage of that journey. You know, not everyone, if I started dating someone five years ago, who I was five years ago might have been suitable for that person who I am now, not suitable for friends that were my besties from seventh grade to that point, who I am now, mm, they're, they're not a match for me. I'm probably not a match for them anymore either. And having to accept that all of that, all of that was okay. As painful as the breakdown of all those things were, it was supposed to happen because if they didn't, I wouldn't be who I am now, which is someone that is ever evolving and ever changing and I think that a, a lot of people experience that same thing in, in one way or another, stripped down, stripped bare. And 
<laughs> I know it seems really silly to be like, and then we all made it to TikTok, but a lot of us did. A lot of us found TikTok for our social fix when, you know, there was no one to communicate with, when our relationships were ending and our friendships were ending and we felt like we had no one to talk to. It was nice to scroll on TikTok for a few hours and get a laugh. The algorithm, the FYP, I don't know what kind of voodoo's behind that, but I think also another thing that happens when you're stripped bare and you're forced to sit in stillness and kind of deal with yourself and tap into your your inner world a little bit more, that awareness behind your ego steps forward a little bit more. Not only do you realize that some of your relationship dynamics are, are diseased, some of your friendships are diseased, you also recognize dis-ease within yourself. You realize what's sick in your body for yourself. Not to say that autism is a sickness or a disease, but it's something. It's something that impacts your entire life without you knowing. And when you realize what the thing is that makes your entire life make sense, that's a major energetic shift too. I, I know of so many people that during COVID realized all kinds of different things about their bodies. I had a friend that that realized pretty soon after lockdown that she had cancer. Uh, another friend came down with like fibromyalgia in, in, in lockdown. And those are terrible things to happen, but being forced to slow down and listen to your body, that saved their lives. Because they were just kind of plunge, like plugging along, chugging along through life with with sickness in their body and kind of normalizing it. Like, yeah, I feel like shit today, but I always feel like shit. So, got to clock in, got to do my thing, got to got to turn it on and operate and be a robot, be another cog in the machine. And I think that forced rest, that forced stillness, was so important for so many of us. And to draw us all or draw so many of us to a platform like TikTok where we're able to be ourselves in a new way and a step or kind of dip your toe into this this new version of yourself and try it on and interact with other people. I think that was really important for culture and for individual people to be able to do that, to be able to unmask and connect with others. But one thing that I learned in this whole TikTok experience is that part of our growth and our evolution as people, part of our healing journey, our spiritual journey is being able to shed old information and take on new information and move forward with that new information. And a lot of people can't accept that. You're supposed to be in this box with everything that people think that you should know and nothing more, nothing less. And to take on something new, to take on a new identity, to take on new information and move with that, a lot of people can't accept that. And maybe that's just me being naive right now, but it was kind of jarring to to witness how many people don't know me at all, don't know me from Adam, but have such strong opinions about what they believe I should be. And what they believe I should have done or didn't do or needed to do. Or people just making up whole stories, making up Roxy lore 
<laughs> and and judging me for it. <laughs> Rocky <Lynch. Yeah. laughs> but the it's like they can't extend any grace or you know afford me the permission to change and evolve and grow and and learn new information i i feel like i've been shoved back down kicked back down into this box people think i should be in but no fuck you i get to make mistakes i get to learn from them i get to make new friends i get to shed the old and usher in the new and move on yeah i love this i have i have so many thoughts and it reminds me too of what's going on on TikTok today because um, Ali is back up there and there's um, I'm mostly just ignoring her because frankly, I've, I've told you this before this conversation too, but I just feel like, you know, I said my piece as far as that. And then this, this podcast is also me saying my piece and I don't feel any need to continue some sort of in the moment TikTok drama at this point, because first of all, it's not a conducive space. And I think this is just an easier place to lay out what is important about it. But anyway, what's going on in TikTok today is there are these troll accounts popping up for the first time, actually, that are directly impersonating me and making fun of this song that I put out last October called Monster. And the song is really relevant to what you were just talking about, I think, because the whole first lyric is, I'll be your monster. And the idea is that I you know, of course, I'm going to be different roles and different people's narratives. And you kind of just have to accept sometimes that people are going to see you as a villain. And it really has nothing to do with you. You know, it really has nothing to do with who you are, or what your role is in your own story. And you can just make your own story, I think. And it's very important to remember that you can, and that it's more important than the stories other people tell about you life has taught me that and it's not just like they're all you know it's interesting that the the fake account that's posing as me right now and it's doing so to like really clearly make fun of me it's not like trying to fake like pretend to be me really it's just making fun of me but um it's commenting things like it's it's parodying me by saying like oh everyone's you know, you're so abusive everyone so apparently that's my caricature of myself as someone who calls everyone abusive but i think it's really just um it's been my experience in life that like people love to scapegoat and get defensive because I'm very polemical. I say things people don't like to hear. And I also am, I try to be careful in my tone. That's part of masking, but I'm not always perfect. And so sometimes I come off in ways that I think really annoy people and people either usually either love me or hate me. So I wrote this song monster that is about that that is about like i completely understand that in order to do anything important at all in the world i'm gonna be the villain in someone's story and i think that's what's happening to us i think that it's happening to you too where people were just nasty nasty making up a bunch of crap about you spreading a bunch of lies and you know part of it's just straight up racism or whatever part of it is that we're doing something important i think and there's always should be room left for, you know, considering whether a bunch of people are telling you you're horrible because you actually are. Like, are people really trying to cancel you because you really need to take a step back and think and reflect and be called in and, and apologize and take accountability? That's definitely a thing. And that usually comes from when you're not dealing with something in your ego and you're getting defensive instead and how you react. Um, or 
are you pissing everybody off because you're doing something really important? And um, both can be, you know, depending on the context, it could be either one. I think in our case, we're doing something important. So of course there's gonna be people that just hate us. And um, so in a way, I almost wrote the song knowing for a fact somebody was going to go back and be like, see, everybody thinks or see, you're a monster. And you said so yourself in your video. And like, sure. I guess, you know, but I know that I'm not. So it really doesn't matter. Thank you for listening. Find additional content at doxtthepodcast.com.